You're listening to the Skift Podcast. Today we feature a rebroadcast of a session that took place at Skift Global Forum East in December of last year. As we prepare to return to Dubai on December 12th through the 14th, we're revisiting a few of the most popular sessions from last year's forum. Enjoy the conversation. Please welcome President and CEO of Hilton, Chris Nassetta, in conversation with Skift founder and CEO, Rafat Ali. All right, folks, this is the session we've been waiting for. Thank you for, uh, thank you for staying. Um, we, we, uh, when we first started thinking about this, this, this screen uh, is a very complex affair. This obviously looks very simple. I want to thank Art Media Inc. That, that is the techno- that, that's the company behind this tech that you're about to see. And uh, they've, they've just done an incredible job. This is, this is days and days and days and weeks of planning for this particular session to happen as well. So uh, let's bring up Chris Nassetta. Let's beam him in. All right, Chris. Thank you for, thank you for being here. This is um, certainly a very novel experience for you. It's also a very novel experience for us as well. This is our first first ever uh, conference that we're do- that we're bringing uh, a speaker in as hologram. Um, are you enjoying the experience so far, Chris? I am. Thanks for having me. Um, when you asked me to do this and do it by hologram, I couldn't help but um, say yes because I've done lots of public speaking um, all over the world. Uh, obviously, mostly live these days, you know, through COVID, certainly some virtual, but I've never done a hologram, so I don't know how it looks. It but, looks great. Um, really enjoying it, this first experience. Can we... um, and it was great to see you uh, in the region. I'm sorry I'm not there now, but as you know, I was there a couple of weeks ago in the region, so it was difficult to get back. So to everybody in the audience, I'm sorry I'm not there live and we're subjecting you to this technology. Hopefully it's working well. Over. But it was great, great to see you in Riyadh for the World Travel and Tourism Global Summit, which uh, was a spectacular success, I think, with 3,000 folks from travel and tourism all over the world, um, you know, seeing what the Middle East has to offer. So great, great to be here. Thanks for of having course, me. Of course, yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing this. When we thought of people who we wanted, the, your name, trust me, was the first name that came to mind and says, we have to get Chris because he's going to be <laughs> totally game for this. So, so let's talk Middle East since we were both in uh, um, Saudi just 10 days ago or so. Um, from a Hilton perspective, What's, why are you so interested in this region and what is your hopes from this region um, for Hilton? Well, I, you know, I've, I've been traveling to the Middle East for decades, probably, you know, 30 years or so, maybe, maybe even longer. I'm forgetting how, how many years I've been doing this. I'm going on 40 years in the industry. And, you know, to see what's been happening, you know, in this region has been awe-inspiring. Um, the commitment of the region to travel and tourism over these last couple of decades has been extraordinary. And the opportunity, I think, for all of us and for the region, you know, to continue to build out the infrastructure for travel and tourism and to continue to bring more people to the Middle East to see all that it has to offer, um, I find fascinating. And, and from the standpoint of Hilton, we view it as one of the most important growth regions. Critical presence there, you know, for a relatively short period of time. I think as I look at our long going, uh, going forward, at least, uh, um, you know, today in Africa we have 
hotels that are that are up and operating. We have 150 in the pipeline and growing. So gives you gives you a sense of sort of where where we think it's going. We talked uh, when we were together a couple weeks ago about the opportunities in, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which mm-hmm. are extraordinary given the investment that's going on there. But, you know, in Dubai is a, you know, I wish I was there. I feel like I'm there. I, in Dubai, when I got to the company, I've been at Hilton 15 years now, almost to the day. We had one hotel um, in Dubai. In the UAE, I think we had three hotels. Um, if you fast forward in the UAE today, we have 35 hotels open mm-hmm. and another 15 that are going to open in the next in the next couple of years. So, you know, in in that, you know, in the UAE, we think there's extraordinary growth in the in Saudi Arabia, we think. But but the region overall, mm-hmm. um, I think, has extraordinary opportunity in front of it. And, and that's because people want to be there. Infrastructure is getting built out. There's been a real commitment um, in terms of strategy in in parts of the Middle East, but more importantly, backed up by significant investment significant in infrastructure investment. to make it, it a reality. And one of the things that obviously uh, is possible in this part of the world that maybe is not possible in part of the world that you and I live in is uh, the public-private partnership, which is the biggest thing that obviously enables tourism. You are not just the CEO of Hilton, you you were the chairman of the board of WTTC, you're very involved with governments as well. Uh, And so the public-private partnership, talk about the importance of public-private partnership in uh, in building these tourism economies that that we just wish is uh, there in our part of the world. Yeah, I mean, if you look at you know, the maturation of travel and tourism in different parts of the world, obviously many parts of the West, including here in the U.S., but in Europe, are more mature travel and tourism markets. And so there's sort of a, you know, a in-place infrastructure, if you will, in terms of transport. Not that it can't be improved, for sure, but there's an in-place uh, infrastructure um, that you have built around travel and tourism, and there's financing availability. There are a lot of players in the industry, both on the you know on the brand side, on the ownership side, on the operating side. So it's just a very big, broad infrastructure, which means that you know it, it takes on a life of its own, and it you know sort of the, the, it has a, a certain amount of momentum. Now that goes up and down, as we know. Uh, and I've witnessed in this last few years relative to economic cycles and the like. But by and large, with very few exceptions, you know, in most of the Western world, um, you don't need a tremendous amount of help from government. So you don't have as much public-private partnership. Now, there are exceptions to that. You think about major convention hotels and major cities, and those are still, I think, you know, for the most part, largely public-private partnerships. But otherwise, the industry sort of has has enough substance that 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 it that it has momentum in in emerging parts of the world meaning you know emerging economies or or, or economies where travel and tourism is a is a meaningful component but where the aspirations are to have it be a much larger component of overall economic growth which i think is very true in the middle east as we were hearing at wttc where all of that infrastructure is not in place i mean meaning airports bridges roads you know, sort of the financing infrastructure, you know, all of the various industry players um, may be there, but they may be earlier in their maturation process. It, it, it is really important in those circumstances that 
government work with the private sector to sort of gain that momentum. I, I suspect, and certainly the hope would be, um, in the Middle East and, and in other uh, regions of the world where, where travel and tourism is sort of, I would say, kind of in, in its infancy, that when you wake up 10 or 20 years from now, th those markets too will have momentum that will require a lot less public-private partnership. But at the moment, um, it's needed. And, and if you go back you know, historically and you look at the origins of Hilton, we're a 103-year-old company, and you look at some of the big projects that we did around the world um, and, and in the Western world, in Europe and the United States, and I can think of, you know, I won't, I won't uh, bore you with all the details, but I can think of a bunch of them in my head. I wasn't around, but they're part of the, the history of the company. They were public-private partnerships. I mean, you know, after World War II, you know, many, many destinations in Europe, as, a, as an example, like the, you know, the Bosphorus Hilton in Istanbul was a joint venture between the Turkish government, the American government, and Hilton, right, to get that done. And there, there are hundreds of examples of that around the world. So when it's needed, those public-private partnerships are critical. And I would say, you know, in the Middle East region at the moment, not every market, you know, is a little bit different. But, you know, I still think that, you know, in many of the markets, that partnership is critical. Dubai, where you're sitting, to a degree, is probably a little bit less so because that market is, is ahead from a travel and tourism point of view. I mean, I don't know whether it's a decade, but at least a decade ahead of um, other other parts of the region, and as a result, you know, it has built some of this momentum and some of this base infrastructure—not just transportation infrastructure, but financing infrastructure and the various players and the various component parts that make up travel and tourism. So, like Dubai, certainly you could argue has you know has built some of that momentum. But in other parts of the region that are really just getting going, where we were in Riyadh and Saudi Arabia, obviously huge investment. Right. going on with uh, in Saudi Arabia um, in, pu in public-private partnership, of which we're um, fortunate to be part of, to, to sort of gain that, build that infrastructure and gain that momentum. Uh, the, uh, in terms of um, the portfolio that you have, one of the things that we, we've heard through this day, one of the things we heard in Saudi when we were there as well, is a focus on luxury. And uh, Hilton is a brand that spans, obviously, across the board. It's not just luxury. You, you span across the board. Do you, think, do you think we're going overboard with luxury in this part of the world? No, I don't. Um, you know, in the sense that all of the segments are, are underbuilt at the moment. I mean, if you, look at the, if you look at the demand equation, I mean, every, you know, every, we go through cycles of ups and downs everywhere in the world. But if you look at it broadly over time, I think all segments of hospitality are sort of underserved in the Middle East region broadly. Now, I'm not going to get into submarket by submarket because we don't have the, the time for that. But, you know, broadly, I'd say all, all the segments are underrepresented. So, no, I don't think broadly that we're going overboard on the high end. I do think, and this is something I say frequently, and in fact, I said it, uh, as you know, on stage at, at uh, WTTC in Riyadh just a couple of weeks ago. I do think that what is critical to build out this infrastructure that I'm talking about for travel and tourism is building a network effect. So that's certainly what we at Hiltner focused on. 
we love luxury. We love doing Conrad's. We love doing Waldorf's. We love doing LXR's everywhere in the world, and particularly in that region. You know, I, we opened, I went and saw three brand new Waldorf Astorias in two days when I was in the Middle East last uh, 10 days ago. And it, it brings joy to my heart. And I love luxury. And I'm, a, you know, I'm a luxury customer. But I'm also, you know, I, you know, I and every other customer have different type of trip occasions that require different products and different price points in different kinds of locations. And so to really, if you look at the most powerful travel and tourism markets, they have built a, built a network effect that are able then to serve people for what their travel needs are as those adapt and change depending on the trip occasion. So what that means to me is you have to cover different product types, different price points to build the network effect. So as an example, using Hilton, since you got me and I have to, you know, I have to push, push my products. Um, the mid-market, you know, like the thing that I don't think gets enough attention anywhere in the world, but certainly does from us, you know, the bulk of the consumers in the world are in the middle class, right? The, the big trend everywhere in the world and, 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 and happening in the Middle East as well is growing middle classes. That's where you have the, you know, the, the greatest growth in the numbers of people. The middle class wants mid-priced product, right? So in the case of Hilton, that would be like Hilton Garden Inn. Um, Hampton by Hilton, True, you know, extended stay might be Homewood Home too, depending on again trip occasion for why people are traveling. Building, you know, a network effect for us certainly at Hilton, so that we can serve any customer anywhere in the world, including the Middle East, for any need they have, requires that we have those sort of mid-market destinations, those dots on the map. And so, as I was at WTTC. It was a point I made, you know, on stage and I made in individual meetings. It's like, it's great. We're dying to do luxury. We love luxury. I love luxury. We've got incredible growth. Our, our luxury brands are some of the fastest growing on earth. But let's, if we really want to build out a network effect for travel and tourism, and certainly as we think about it at Hilton, we need to make sure that we pay close attention to the mid-market to make sure that in secondary and tertiary markets, we've got dots on the map with good product that allow customers to travel to those destinations in addition to having the high-end customers. Thank you. That was very detailed. Let's talk a little about macro. Obviously, you sit on so much of data, right? And so um, are you, and we talked about this two weeks ago, are you seeing any weakness anywhere in the world? We're not. Um, we're not. And I, I start every Monday with an executive committee meeting of the top people in the company that represent the entire world. And my first question is, any cracks, you know, any, <laughs> any cracks in the armor in terms of what we're seeing in recovery, any cracks in any of the segments? And the, and the honest truth is we're not seeing it. You can see it in the star data, like all around the world. Right. Um, you know, obviously China had been and is lagging in recovery. Large, every, it's a big world, and every every part of the world's a little bit different story. But I would say broadly, the world is in strong recovery mode in our industry, with the exception of China, and that is now morphing to what we think is going to be a strong recovery mode. We will see over the next sixty or ninety days, but it certainly feels like it's going that direction. We can already start to see it in, you know, in the daily data. Mm. But 
outside of that in the rest of the world, things continue to be quite strong. You know, everybody asks me, like, if the world is getting weaker, why do you think that is Case. And now I should be letting you ask me that, Rafat, but I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm now doing my own Q&A. But it is right. it is a question everybody's asking. It's like, all right, well, you know, the macro, particularly in the West, the macro conditions are slowing because central banks are are making sure of that. But what's what's sort of underneath it all is some some bigger tailwinds that are that are allowing us to remain strong in recovery across all segments. Um, and what are the so, I mean, one is people are definitely shifting spending patterns, um, going from spending all their time buying things to wanting experience. And that's fabulous for our business. So there's a huge shift back that is still ongoing to people wanting to get out and experience things, given what they, they've dealt with the last couple of years. Um, the other thing is the world's opening up, right? So, right. Um, you know, right now, the... The borders are not widely open everywhere, but most everywhere, hopefully soon China. And so reality is people have built up a lot of needs to go see parts of the world or desire and need. And so international travel is coming back. And then there's just a, a, a significant amount of pent up demand. I mean, let's be honest, like yeah. people have you know, pent up demand for leisure. Um, they got locked up for two years. They want to live their life and they want to have more experiences. All the business trips that people didn't do, they're doing. And look at what we're doing here. Sadly, I'm not there but because I was there 10 days ago. But like meetings and events, it's off right. the charts. I mean, I've never been to more meetings in one year in my life than I've been in. I think, I think objectively and statistically, that's true. <laughs> Why? Because we stack so many different things up across the industry, across our company that, you know, that we've had to get out. And if you look at it in the next year or two, you know, the, the forward looking bookings and, and meetings and events are off the charts, partly pent up demand, partly new demand. So you have all of those sort of, you know, all of those tailwinds. And, you know, from a secular point of view, you also have a world becoming, which I think is a longer term tailwind, in addition to people wanting experiences more than things, which is what was happening pre-COVID and now happening, um, people are more mobile, right? I mean, so think about it. Like during COVID, everybody figured out how to work remotely and office environments have changed. And I mean, they're normalizing to a degree. I mean, you're 100% remote at right. this point, That's I'm, I'm, I'm told. Yes. Um, and so what does that mean? You're a good example. Your people have to travel. They have to eventually go places. And what does that mean? They're staying in our hotels. You're probably hosting meetings, I hope, in Hilton's, not not in the competition, because you don't have office space. Well, you may be the more the more extreme in the sense of being completely remote, but but most businesses have become more remote, right? Uh, that a, a significant percentage of their workforce is more mobile. That's a really good long-term secular tailwind um, for our business. So. Oh. Listen, there are some headwinds. There's no, there's no beating around the bush. The macro environment's going to slow, but these tailwinds that I'm talking about feel quite powerful, and I think will propel us for some period of time through okay. these headwinds. So, um, you talked about business travel, and let me confess, you were right on business travel. 
It was. Uh, you it, told me I was going to be wrong. I, I did. I, I did. You were. You were right. Skipped early. Did, it was the day you gave me the that that really cool slot in New York. The last speaker of the day. I'll never forget. Yes. Yes. Uh, and but but uh, <laughs> we we had a great interview and uh, and we did. I enjoyed it. I'm teasing. And so. Um, one of the things I was reading through your latest earnings calls, and you said on this earnings call, uh, what is what is held a business what what held a business travel during the pandemic, what is still holding up business in uh, uh, business travel is the small and medium businesses. And you have, yeah. I don't know if I want to use the word pivoted, but you've certainly focused on small and medium businesses as your corporate travel side of your business. So talk about that versus the the large corporates. Yeah. Well, we love all our customers. Let let me be clear, right? Whether they're they're small, medium, or big, we love them all, and we want to do a great job serving them. Pre-COVID, this is something I don't think many people focused on. Um, I did, and, and our our team did, but most people outside, you know, our direct ecosystem did. That is, eighty percent of business travel at Hilton was SME, small and medium-sized enterprises. Pre-COVID, it was so the the vast majority, super majority, of our business travel has always been that type of travel. So that meant twenty percent were the large corporates, and we love great relationships with with many many of, of the large corporate um, um, entities that you know that that have travel needs. During COVID, okay, what happened is a lot of the large corporates, you know, basically slashed all travel, um, right. both for, for uh, financial reasons. But also health and safety, where um, SMEs did not. They just didn't have the luxury of doing it. It's not, first of all, it's not as efficient a market in the sense that, you know, they're small and medium players. They don't necessarily have a travel department, a procurement department, and their business is such that they don't have the luxury of saying, I'm not going to travel because they got to keep the business going. And so what we found during COVID is they were much more resilient. I mean, everybody stopped at the beginning of. COVID, let's be honest, there wasn't anybody traveling, but very rapidly the SME business re recovered because they needed to. And we found it to be much more resilient. During COVID, it was probably, you know, 95% of, of our business and the large corporates um, had diminished gravely. And now we, I wouldn't say we pivoted because it was already 80% mm -hmm. uh, of our business, but we probably leaned a little harder on that. And I think we will longer term. So I, I don't know exactly where we'll end up, but if it ended up at eighty-five fifteen, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, and mm -hmm. and we like that. It's more resilient. It's, it's lower beta. It's higher paying business because of the nature of the business. But again, we love all our customers. So it's not like we're going to say you know we don't want to serve the large corporates. Of course, we're one of the biggest players in the world. Right. Um, we need to, and we will continue to serve them. So I would say it's a you know, we're leaning a little bit heavier that direction. Um, we think longer term that that is probably better for our ownership in terms of pricing, distribution costs, resiliency, you know, being a lower base. Speaking of ownership, you, um, I would say, have famously sat out. I can't hear you. Oh, you can't hear me? I guess. I now I can. You can. Okay. So um, you have famously sat out the big M&A gold rush, would it be fair to say? But you are a deal guy. Your yes. whole life, you've been a deal guy. 
And, uh, and, and you and I talked Can about- Can you imagine a guy that was born and raised on M&A? Has, I've, been at the, I've been running Hilton 15 years and we've bought nothing. We've done zero M&A. Now, to be fair, we've done a lot of really interesting transactions, right? We went private, we went right. public. We broke the company into three pieces and made it three public companies instead of one. So we've done a lot of uh, fun financial engineering and transactional work, but we haven't bought any. We have not. You're right. So, so, so tell me uh, what your philosophy is on that. Philosophy is really simple, and that is we're, we're all about um, basically serving the customer as best we can, giving customers product, service, technology that is reliable in a friendly way, um, that is better than everybody else, and as a result, they'll pay us a premium. And so as we look at, we have a huge base, obviously, we're, you know, 1.1 plus, almost 1.2 million rooms, 7,000 plus hotels, you know, 126 countries. We have a, a wonderful network. So we have scale. We don't have to do things just for scale. So as we look at the segments that we have or those that we, we view might provide an opportunity, we then, we look at how do we deliver the best product for our customers? And how do we do it in a way that is most advantageous to the shareholders that own the company? Um, and so we look at everything, ironically. I have an M&A team, as you point right. out. I have an M&A background. We, you know, we love looking at things. You know, it's, fun, it's fun to analyze them and we learn things. But the reality is when we put it through our filter of like, how do we deliver the best product for our customer? And how do we do it in the way that is most advantageous for our shareholders? Every time so far, and I suspect that pattern will continue, we determine that we're better off if we see an opportunity developing our own brand. I, you know, I would say, like when I got to the company, we had nine brands, we have 19, more than doubled the portfolio brands. They're all successful. They're all doing, some of them are a little bit early in gestation. Well, many of them have matured quite rapidly. They're very successful. Why? Because it's we have designed these in a modern context around exactly what customers want, and we built it out of the dust. We built it with our own blood, sweat, and tears, rather than paying you know a, a big price. It's been great for our shareholders. Infinite yields, effectively, by creating these and creating things that creating brands really resonate um, with our customers. I would say that's why when you look at our market share. You got all the Smith Travel numbers. You would see, on average, our brands significantly outperform any other portfolio brands in the business. Right. So when we look at things, it's not that we don't like things. It's just every time we look at it, we realize everything has you know every there you know we don't want to have to go fix other people's problems when <laughs> we already have scale and we're very, we become very good at organic brand development and we can deliver very precisely what we think the customers want. Um, you and I have talked about this many times before, but you're also a company that have that has famously sat out anything in the alternative accommodation world, and uh, you want to stick to hotels. You've told me many times we're going to continue to stick to hotels. Uh, for for the benefit of this audience, um, what's your latest thinking on it? Same. Well, well, let me be clear. Yes, I have. You're you're accurately describing um, our conversation. We are in, to a degree, alternative accommodation, think about it. I mean, right. we have 
you know, residences for Waldorf's and Conrad's. We have Hilton residences all over the world. So, you know, basically, you know, Hilton apartments in various regions of the world. That's not a, been a big thing in the U.S., but in other regions of the world, we haven't. We haven't, you know, uh, our one of our spin companies was Hilton Grand Vacations, you know, which is right. clearly an alternative accommodation. Um, and we have a hundred year relationship with them, you know, with, with their brands. And so we're in the alternative accommodation business that way. The other way we're sort of in it, if you think about it, is um, in the extended state business. And, right. and I think there may be more opportunities in that arena, which is sort of a bridge. You know, that's, that's uh, not a traditional hotel business. Um, it's, it's for a different stay occasion. And you can think about the spectrum of extended stay that could go, that could go even further out relative to the, the brands that we have. Um, and I'll leave it at that. I mean, we're, we're always right. looking at those, at those options. So we're in the alternative accommodation market in a pretty big way. If you aggregate all that, what we're not in, which is what you and I have talked about is home sharing. Right. And the reason that we're not in it is not that we don't think it's a good business. I think it's a great business. And, and some of our customers like it, use it. And when we talk to them, um, it's something, you know, that for certain stay occasions they like, but it's not why they come to us. Why they come right. to us is because and pay us a big premium is because we deliver high quality, consistent product, service, amenities, loyalty program, technology that connects all the dots together. And, and, and in the end, deliver what we hope is a very reliable, high quality, friendly experience in a way that we just don't think can be done in that other environment. Again, right. for a certain stay occasion a value, leisure, more extended stay, higher occupancy, um, um, kind of stay occasion, that makes sense. But it's a different sort of value proposition. We, the whole strategy of our company, if, if there's no other takeaway, we want to be the premium player. We don't want, we're right. not the value player. So even at our lowest price point, like True or Hampton, if you look at the average market share of those brands, they're 120 to 135% market share. So even at those lower price points, we're getting a 20 or 30, 20 to 35% um, on average premium. So right. we think about everything in the context of like, we want to be the premium player in those segments. If we deliver at the various price points for the various product types, the best experience, the best product, um, the best technology for our customers, they'll continue to seek us out and, and pay a premium. So we're, we're not, well, we can't do that. And we believe it is very difficult, if not impossible, to do it the same way in home sharing. Right. Then we're not interested at the moment in participating. Um, in the other areas that we talked about, Hilton Grand Vacation, Hilton Residences, Waldorf, you know, we can, you know, right. we, we, we can deliver on that promise to our customers in a way that we just don't think we can. And home sharing. So home sharing is the, the sort of one element one where element. we are right. still uh, very much of mind that it's not um, something that we should or need to be doing. Or frankly, when we talk to our customers, they really want us to do. Right. Uh, we, we, we have about a minute or two left. Um, you, as I mentioned, you're, you're also very active at the government level. Uh, I, I, I would be remiss not to ask about uh, the visa wait times to U.S., and and sort of your views on why that needs to change. For those of you who don't know, uh, if you need a visa to come to the U.S., the wait times in many parts of the world 
is is now incredibly long uh, for, for astronomically for, astronomically and from India it's now crossed in Mumbai it crossed thousand days to get an uh, an appointment to get a visa to U.S. and so obviously U.S. is losing out in a huge way on tourism boom that's going on all around the world so from your perspective what do you think the industry can do? Well, we're working very hard on the industry. Okay, I've been on, I've been working in the industry for most of my career. I mean, I can remember during the early days of the Obama years, uh, you know, in his first administration, same thing. We had wait times from Brazil, India, China. They they were you know six months, nine months, and we were really losing a lot of the travel wall as a result. And we worked very hard with the administration. To their credit, they they did heaven and earth. They drove all of those wait times way down, and, been, and the country benefited in a significant way. I think we've gotten out of whack by no malicious intent, honestly. Right. I think it's COVID. I think you know. I think that governments broadly, and, and our government here has had a lot on its plate to deal with. And this, and and we didn't have borders open, you know, for the last couple of years in a significant way. And so I just think it didn't. I think those muscles atrophied a bit. But we're very focused on it. I, you know, starting, I believe in March, I take over as chair of the of the U.S. Travel Association, right. USDA, and it's one of our primary objectives. We are already, while I'm not chair yet, we've been very active. We are actively engaged um, at all levels of government to to continue to work on that, and I'm optimistic that we will. Again, it's it's like anything; it just takes focus. It's sort of mom and apple pie in the sense of exports to the country, it's good for the economy, it's good for the jobs. It just requires continued focus and attention. And I think as things warp away from COVID and health and border restrictions to more policies that, that uh, uh, are focused on opening borders, I think, I think we'll have great success. So one of the, one of the most important things I will do um, in the new year um, as I take over as chair of U.S. Travel all right. With that, we come to an end. Chris, how was this experience for you so far? How was what? Well, it was great. I don't know. How was it for everybody there? How was it for you? Well, people, I guess they're clapping. So they seem to All enjoy right. it. Uh, I can't see the crowd. You can't, you can't see the crowd there. We had to put the lights down because obviously this is being beamed in. But uh, I just. Oh, um, yeah. It's dark. I see some shadows. Crowd, you I said the shadows in the cut, but but no, I, I uh, I'm really sad I can't be there. I love Dubai and the Skiff, but you guys are terrific. You do such a good job covering the industry. I always say to Rafat, you know, you can be tough, but you're fair. You cover the industry well, and we we uh, we love the partnership we have. Industry is better for you. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Yeah. This has been the Skift Podcast. Thank you for listening.